0: So I'm really Jason. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, when Jason gave me the opportunity to speak, um, I knew what I really wanted to speak about because Jason's told me a little bit just about the history of the church here, but also the focus that we're trying to get um, get the whole church on, and that's that you know the church, our mission, our ministry is not um, just focused on these four walls. Well, how many walls are there? Four, five. I lost track, and there's another one over there, but that what we do as, as followers of Jesus does not exist only within this one building, and I love that, and when Grace and I decided that we would be moving back to the U.S. to um, continue our ministry, that was our requirement. It wasn't we want a church that looks like this. We want a church that has this kind of people. We're looking for a church that we want to be at that focuses on being Christ to the neighborhood. And when, the more I talk to Jason, the more I just realize that's really what he's wanting to do here. And so that's what Grace and I want to do, and that's, what, that's why we're so excited to be here today. What I want to talk about today, though, is what happens before we reach out to the neighborhood, what happens before we talk about Christ to, to our coworkers, to the to our neighbors. Because there's this huge temptation to think that we just go, we leave church, then we go out, and then we're just going to go save the world. I guess it'd be really easy if it was like that, but it's not. Because I can't fix somebody's sin. God can. I can't save somebody's life. I can't save their soul. That's what God does. But the best thing about God is that he involves us in his ministry, in his plan to save the world. Um, the old headmaster at the school that we taught at, I say old, he was the, from our old job, but he was actually pretty old. He's a grandfather. And one day, he's Australian. And Has anybody here been to Australia? Anybody? All right, awesome. It is hot there, but in December, so they actually have barbecues for Christmas. It's pretty cool. But one summer, Brian decided that he was going to go um, help, his, well, no, he was going to wash his son's car. And so he walks outside and realizes, oh, this would be a really good Um, bonding experience with my grandson. So I said, hey, grandson, five years old, come over here. I'm going to teach you how to wash a car. So you all know where this is going. Um, They go outside. Brian takes the bucket. He's got a bucket of water, bucket of soap. He walks it over to the car and puts it down. Then he walks back over to the house. Says, grandson, go over by the car. He turns on the faucet. The hose starts shooting water. Then he realizes my grandson's still all the way over there. And he's shooting water everywhere. He's loving it. He's like, oh, water everywhere. Starts shooting the car. He thinks he's washing the car, but he's not. And then so Brian says, no, stop. Here's how you wash a car. So he gets a sponge, starts scrubbing different things. You know, he washes the tire, then sprays it down. And then the grandson throws soap at the tire. That's not how you wash a car. And then Brian, you know, sprays the hood. And then the grandson throws soap all over the hood, throws soap on the trunk, throws soap on the tires. Brian's like, we already washed the tire. But eventually, after hours, in the hot hot Australian sun, they wash the car, they soap it, and they let it dry. Brian and his grandson, they walk back in, and and the first thing the grandson does is he runs, jumps into his father's lap, and he says, Daddy, I washed the car! And Brian just goes, Yeah, we washed the car. Now, did the the grandson wash the car? Absolutely not. But here's what Brian said, and this, this quote changed my life. He says this, the greatest thing about God is that he lets us be involved in his work, and he lets us think that we're doing it. That is so cool. I love that, because he really does. We're we're a church. We're trying to be focused on blessing our neighborhood. That's God's job, but he involves us. Who are we to be involved in that? I don't know, but it's so much fun, but one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to focus on that saving part first. We tend to focus on our neighbors first. And that, that's skipping a really close step because what we need to do is focus on God's will first. Who is God trying to save? Where is God moving? And we miss that if we aren't on board with God's plan first. So today I want to talk about in a really backwards way how we can get on board with God's plan, how we can understand God's will. I took a class at the University of Washington called the History of Christianity, and it was taught by a a professor who wasn't Christian, but he taught me something really cool. He said, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he was a big, bold, outspoken Christian guy. The Catholic Church, some people think, wanted to kill him. And he said, if I could take the book of James and rip it out of the Bible, I would be a happy man. And he said this because he felt like the book of James was um, not focused enough on grace. Not my wife but on God's gift of salvation. (laughs) I make that joke all the time. She doesn't laugh that often. (laughs) But he said, James is focused all on living out your faith. He said, we are saved by grace. And so he said, therefore, let's rip it out. Well, he was unsuccessful. But that gave me a thought, because there's this one verse, I'm going to talk about it today, and I hate this verse. I, I had to preach the other day on my favorite verse in the Bible. I said, no, I'm going to teach on my least favorite verse of the Bible, So I'm going to share that with you today, because it has everything to do with what we have to do to get on board with God's plan for the neighborhood out here. What we have to do to understand God's will for our workplace, for our neighbors. So, let's see, here's a cool picture. That is not my Bible, I promise. But uh, what we're going to be looking at today is, this is Thessalonica, and we're going to look at Paul's first letter to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a big port city. And a lot of people think that when Paul wrote his first letter to, to the church there, that that was the first letter written to any church that became a part of the New Testament. So this might be the earliest part of the New Testament. Paul wrote it to a church, but the church was not Jews that became Christians. The church in Thessalonica, and this is very important to remember this part, they were most likely converted, um, converted people who were converted from, from worshiping Greek gods, and Roman God. So this isn't, they understand God, now they're just worshiping God through Jesus. This is, we've been worshiping all of these suns, all of these stars, all of these things, and now we're trying to understand that there's only one God. Now we're trying to understand that that one God sent Jesus, and that's who we're worshiping. So Paul is writing a letter to a brand new church full of brand new Christians who are just now worshiping the idea of one God. I'll I'll read this. This is First on Thessalonians chapter five verse twelve. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Remember, he's writing this to new Christians. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Um, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So today I want to talk about what we have to do before we're going to be fully on board with God's plan. And what that is, is a verse that I think we, and I'm including myself in this, It's a verse that we have changed from what Paul was trying to say. It's a verse that, I'm just going to say it, I think we have ruined this verse. And the verse is right behind me. Pray continually. I have heard this misused so much. I have misused this verse so much. And I'm going to talk about what I think Paul originally meant it to, and also what we have turned it into. But the first thing I have to do is I have to tell a story, because that's kind of what I do. Now, I have heard that New Mexico has really good skiing. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, awesome. I am the most average skier in the world. I'm not bad, I'm really not, but I'll bet most of you guys are, are, are way better than me. Um, I love going off jumps, though. But the kind of jumps I like going off are about this tall, and they give you about this much air. Because when, when bad skiers see you, they're like, oh wow, that guy got air. And you can impress all the bad skiers, but you know you didn't really do anything that dangerous. So I'm going to tell a story about when I went up on this mountain that's above me, and this is in Seattle, which would be the opposite of the snow here. I've heard there's lots of great powder, lots of great skiing here. In Seattle, we have this thing called ice, and that's what you ski on. So I, I can ski pretty much anywhere in the world. I've been told because I learned to ski on ice and. There are some tricks that I know that, you know, you might just crash because you're just going straight and you can't stop. I can stop on ice. But I went up on this um, run right on the left side and it's called Big Chief. And on Big Chief, I decided to go alone because some of my friends were too scared of Big Chief. And I said, well, look at me. I'm an average skier. I'm gonna go up on Big Chief. So I went up, got off the ski lift, and I turned around and I just saw a really great view. I I saw saw my friends skiing over there. I saw a a big valley over here with 10,000 trees. It was cool. And then I saw something right in front of me that I'd never seen before on Big Chief. It was a brand new jump. I was excited. Now the cool part was I was by myself, so if I didn't land this jump perfectly, no one would know. So I decided to point my body towards the jump, stick my poles under my armpits, because that's what they do on the Olympics. (laughs) I bent my knees a little bit, and I didn't stop. About 30 feet before I got to the jump, I noticed that the jump had there was this little corner of the jump, and it started melting, which doesn't make sense because the jump is packed snow. So why would packed snow be melting? It didn't really make sense, but I really wanted to hit this jump. So I kept my knees bent, and I didn't stop. About five feet before I realized why the jump is melting, um, underneath the melted snow is gray. I realized that the jump was not a jump. The jump was a massive boulder. And I hadn't stopped. Now young people, the coolest part about getting married is that as soon as you get married, a supernatural thing happens. You receive all of your spouse's skills and talents. My wife is an art teacher, so here is my beautiful artistic representation of what happened when I ran into a a boulder about this tall, going full speed. (laughs) I know, I'm amazing. This is no exaggeration. If you see here, my body actually was like a letter C. My face hit first, I dropped my poles, I lost my hat, my gloves, my gloves fell off. I don't know how that happens. My goggles fell off. And right before my skis fell off, my skis hit me in the back of the head. You never want that to happen. It was a terrible thing. There's my boulder over there. Yeah, it was a terrible thing. And I remember, I remember this so clearly. I had this sensation go all the way down my spine. And I remember in the movies, when you hear people talking about getting paralyzed, they say, I felt the sensation go down my spine. And then I was paralyzed, and I'm thinking, I felt that sensation. So I'm I'm just sprawled out on the snow. No one's around me. They're all down there having fun eating chili fries, and really good chili fries at Stevens Pass there. And I'm sprawled out, and I think I should pray. God, please don't let me be paralyzed. That was my prayer. That was the first time I prayed at Big Chief. There was another time that I prayed at Big Chief where I went up as the last run of the night. As soon as I got up there, the chairlift stopped, and some of the lights started turning off. I looked over, and I saw my friends, and I saw just a few tiny people. Well, They were tiny, like I was far away from them. They weren't tiny people. And and they were going down the mountain, and and it was just so cool being so far away, but I could see them. And then over on the right side over here, I see this valley with 10,000 trees. And then they're growing, and they're growing, and then there hits a point, and it's called the tree line. And the trees don't grow there anymore because the oxygen is too thin. And I'm looking at these people and the 10,000 trees, and I go, wow, God is great. Now, I'm not a nature person. I don't care about nature at all. <laughs> I don't. I don't at all. But that night, those trees, they reminded me God is creative. God does really cool stuff. Those were two times that I prayed on Big Chief. God, please don't let me be paralyzed. God, good job with those trees. That should not be the foundation of my prayer life. Those are reactionary prayers. I've come to call those big chief prayers. I see that, oh, thank you, God. I need this. Oh, God, give me this. I want this, or I have experienced this, or God, this person's experiencing this. These are all good, but these are all big chief prayers. These are the kind of things that are not the foundation of our prayer life. These are things that are not going to change our life. I met a guy who sang on American Idol. He toured through Indonesia. And at one point in his life, he got held at gunpoint against a wall. And the 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 gunman was going to steal his car and one of the keys, so he pushes this guy named Phil, pushes him against the wall, holds a gun to his head. And Phil, he's Christian. He said, I prayed against the wall, God, please let me die like a man. That was his prayer. And then he said this. He said, uh, kind of hard to read. He says this. When tragedy strikes, your prayer life instantly gets awesome. That's so true. When I, when I needed to not be paralyzed, and uh, spoiler alert, I'm not paralyzed. I prayed to God. I said, God, please let me walk again. I'm not married. I want to I wanna marry a cute girl in Indonesia. Um, God, those trees are so cool. Thank you for letting me see those trees. Phil Stacy. God, please let me die like a man. Those are big chief prayers. They're prayers of reaction. My wife and I got married in Bali. And when we were driving around looking at different wedding sites, Bali is a Hindu island. I saw a piece of graffiti, probably done by someone who is Hindu, but it changed my life. And it said, four words, prayer is a gift. When I just pray because I need something, that's not treating prayer like a gift. And I am fully guilty of this. I have used prayer as a reaction. I have not prayed continually. But the problem is, when we do these reactionary prayers, these really quick prayers, like, oh, I'm in the bus, or oh, I'm waiting in line at Starbucks, and we pray then, that's what we've turned praying continually into. And here's the weird part. Paul's writing to a brand new church. Remember, these these people five days ago were worshiping pagan gods, and now they're in a church. And Paul is saying, not here's some easy things to do. Paul is closing his letter with a challenge. One of his challenges is rejoice in everything. That's hard. But then he says, pray continually. That is also hard. So Paul wrote this to be a challenge. Paul wrote this to say, hey, I want you to try to achieve this goal, and that goal is to pray and never stop. I was in a Bible study one time, and a guy said, yeah, I I pray continually. You know, I I was praying continually when I was on the toilet yesterday. And I, I don't think that's what Paul meant when he's trying to challenge brand new Christians. He wasn't saying, hey, next time you're in the toilet, I want you to pray to God. If you want to pray to God when you're in the bathroom, when you're in line, that's awesome, and we should do that. But that's not praying continually. We're going to look at a couple stories about what it means to pray continually. The first, if you want to turn to me in a paper Bible, is Luke chapter 5, verse 12. I love hearing the Bible pages turn. I'll wait until I hear them stop. All right. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And here's the key. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I googled Jesus alone, and this is the picture that came up. This is crazy, and here's why. I'm a guest this week. If there was somebody, is there anybody in a wheelchair here today? No, okay. If there was somebody in a wheelchair in in this front row, and right now I touched them, and they started walking, Jason, you'd hire me on the spot. Not only that, you guys would block the doors and you wouldn't let me leave till I healed every single one of you. Jesus knew that. He was famous. He was growing more famous. He was healing people. And what does the Bible say he did? He often withdrew to pray. Now Jesus knew what the crowds wanted him to do. They didn't want him to be someone who died on the cross for their sins. They wanted him to be a military king, kill Rome. That's what they wanted. But Jesus knew, if I'm going to accomplish God's will, not the crowd's will, but God's will, I have to spend time with God. I have to give my time to God. Jesus knew that the only way to change the world was to be in a continual relationship with God, the one who is already changing the world. And if that's how Jesus was on board with God's will, that's how we're going to be on board with God's will too. It's not having a prayer life that is just a reaction. It's having a prayer life that we would describe as often. I often withdraw to pray. That's what Jesus did, and he, people were gathered around him so that they could heal him, and Jesus wanted to heal them. But he knew if he's going to be a part of God's will, he has to go and be alone. Jesus gave a lot of his time to God. Here's another verse. This is in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, If we are going to be people who are on board with God's will, if we're going to be people that reach out successfully to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to the neighborhood around the church, that's going to come after we give God our time. I've been, uh, Like Jason said, I've been teaching English for the past six years, and there's this really cool thing, and a lot of you guys know this. This isn't um, a secret, but it's called a motif. And a motif is a recurring symbol that recurs um, throughout a piece of literature. It's a symbol that happens over and over again. And if we're looking at Jesus just as a story, Jesus spending time alone is a motif. Check this out. Before Jesus um, uses the phrase kingdom of God, he's alone in prayer. Before he invites the 12 disciples, he's alone in prayer. Before Jesus feeds 5,000, which was his most public uh, miracle, Jesus was alone in prayer. Before calming the sea, well, Jesus was alone in prayer. Then joined the disciples who were out on the lake, to and then he calmed the sea. Before Jesus teaches the Lord's prayer, our Lord was alone in prayer, and then finally, and we all know this one. Right before Jesus was betrayed, he was alone in prayer. So to pray continually, it's not fitting God in our schedule. It means to give God our time. Big chief prayers, they're good, but they're not enough. It's good to pray in times of joy, convenience, need, want. But that's just the beginning. We need to have a foundation where we give God our time, where we often withdraw, and we are focused on determining God's will. This is something hard and frustrating, and it might be discouraging, but it's absolutely true. If you're wondering why God feels really, really close at a retreat, and then on Monday God doesn't feel close, it's because at the retreat you gave God your time, and at home you're not. If you're wondering why during the worship time God feels so close to you, and then on Thursday afternoon he doesn't, it's because you're not giving God your time during the week. I hope God feels close now because we're all here for God, but if we're not doing it outside of Sunday morning, we're not going to feel close to God. I want to tell one more story about a guy who worked really, really hard to pray continually. This is a book, and it's called The Way of the Pilgrim. And it's a true story by a guy who calls himself Pilgrim. So I call him Pilgrim the Pilgrim because he was a pilgrim. And, and Pilgrim the Pilgrim read this read 1 uh, Thessalonians, and he said, I want to pray continually. But Pilgrim knew something important. He knew that prayer was a gift, but he also knew he had to learn how to use it. He did not treat prayer as something that happens naturally. He treated it as a goal, like Paul wanted. He said, praying continually, I want to accomplish that. So he goes to a monk, and he says, Monk, teach me how to pray continually. So the monk says, "All right, bow your head, look in your heart, and I want you to pray just a couple words. He said, pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Now do it again, now do it again, now do it again. And the most amazing thing is, they didn't fall asleep, and they prayed all night. That's amazing. And I'm sure that we could learn something from that. But Pilgrim the Pilgrim prays this prayer all night long. Then does it for the rest of the week. Then does it for another six months. and for a year. The monk dies. But then Pilgrim the Pilgrim is still trying to pray this prayer. He's trying to continually pray so that prayer will be a part of who he is. Now, he's not fitting God into his schedule. He's making his entire schedule around God. Two years after trying to pray continually, Pilgrim the Pilgrim is walking through Siberia, going through the snow to a tomb of an old saint. And something happens, just walking down the road through the snow. And he wrote it down here. This happened 200 years ago, and this is such a great thing. He says, After no great lapse of time, I had the feeling that the prayer had, so to speak, by its own action, passed from my lips to my heart. That is to say, it seemed as though my heart, in its ordinary beating, began to say the words of the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. I simply listened carefully to what my heart was saying. It seemed as though my eyes looked right down into it. Then I felt something, like a pain in my heart, and in my thoughts so great a love for Jesus Christ that I pictured myself throwing myself at his feet, and not letting them go from my embrace, kissing them tenderly, and thanking him with tears for having of his love and grace allowed me to find so great a consolation in his name, me, his unworthy and sinful creature. Further, there came into my heart a gracious warmth which spread through my whole breast. I have never prayed like that in my life. And I'm willing to bet most of us haven't either. But Pilgrim the Pilgrim knew something. He knew that praying continually is something we have to work to do. But he was giving God enough of his time that he achieved that goal. Paul said, new Christians, try to pray continually. Pilgrim the Pilgrim did. He didn't fit God into his schedule when he was in line at Starbucks. Starbucks didn't exist. But he said, I'm gonna make my entire existence about asking for God's mercy. That's giving God our time, and that's praying continually. When I taught as an English teacher, I uh, taught them this technique for writing that was going full circle. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close where, where, I, where I began. Big Chief, I'm lying down there. I pray, God, don't let me be paralyzed. And I wasn't. I got up, skied down the mountain, and ate some of those really good chili cheese fries. That was it. You know, I probably even prayed for the food. God, thank you for these chili cheese waffle fries. And that was great. But since then, I have learned that these reactionary prayers, these big chief prayers, they're good. But that's not what Paul meant when he said pray continually. He was challenging us with a goal. If you want to know God's will, if you want to change the world, be a part of God's will first. Give God your time, often withdraw, and work in your prayer life because praying is hard. We, need to, we are not wired to want to do that but when we work hard, we realize that prayer is a gift. Grace and I are here this weekend because we made a choice a long time ago that we want to be a part of what God's doing in the world. And we want to do that through a local church that is wanting to bless their own neighborhood. Because the thing is, God is going to bless Albuquerque. It's just a matter of who's going to get close enough to him to be involved. We don't change lives. God does. We don't save souls. God does. But the great thing about God is that he lets us be involved in our work, and he lets us think that we're doing it. I hope that all of you guys want to say, I want to work on my prayer life. And right now, we're going to have an opportunity to pray with the elders as the worship team um, sings. So this is the time when we are able to say, God, I'm going to focus on you through prayer. This is one way that we can give God our time in prayer. So right now we're going to have a time of prayer, and if you want to um, pray with the elders, you can come up to the front, and we're all going to stand right now as we pray.